Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Wednesday, August the 24th, 2022. This is episode 3,152. Uh, this is going to be an interesting discussion today with Chuck Marone of strongtowns.org about building resilient communities. We... Uh, Probably the first half of this discussion, we talk about how we got in the mess we're in, and then the second half is more about what you do about it. And I love the work Chuck is doing. You'll hear me challenge him a couple times during this discussion. Most of the challenge is more of a devil's advocate thing. I think it makes a more interesting uh, interview at times to challenge a guest and let them defend their position. Uh, there's a couple things that maybe don't completely in sync, but in the end, like I think we agree like 98% here on what's going on and what we can expect to continue to happen in this country because of the giant mess that we're in. And I think we agree a lot on various forms of solutions to it, and so we'll drop into that as a live feed uh, <clears throat> that we did in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Start9.com. Take back your digital sovereignty by running your own personal server. Uh, <clears throat> the Start9 digital server is is about the size of like two decks of playing cards. But it can radically change your life. Yeah, you can do things like run a Bitcoin node and a Lightning node on it, but it's it's so much more than that. It's full digital sovereignty. You can manage your passwords and have access to them from anywhere in the world. How about that? You can control your own data, store your own pictures. You, you can set up encrypted, end-to-end, military-grade encrypted chat with your friends and your family just because, well... Maybe somebody doesn't need to know what you're saying to anybody else. And you actually rely on the fact that it is encrypted end-to-end, that you're controlling yourself and it's not running through a third party that can rat you out and say, yeah, I know, you see how that works. How about not having risk to your data because you control it? You can learn how to do all of this and more at Start9.com. And remember, they give a huge discount to members of the MSB. So check them out today at Start9.com. Next up today is KnifeKits.com. I often talk about this when I mention knife kits, but I, I think what you should really look at if you're not an, you know, if you're a knife maker, you already know they're a great place to get materials. They're a great place to get kits to build kit knives on. They're a great place to get kydex for stuff like that. But if you've never made a knife before and you've kicked around the idea, I want you to think about it this way. It's building an heirloom. There's a lot of stuff that has come and gone in my life over the years. I thought I wanted it. One of the things I really, really think about before I pass it on to somebody else, even if it's not that great a one, is a knife. Knives are just a workhorse tool that we keep around. Now imagine if you had one you made with your grandfather. Maybe your grandfather's long since gone from this world, like mine is. Maybe that can never happen, but maybe you're a grandfather now yourself, or a dad. What if you took time with your son, your daughter, your grandson, your granddaughter, your niece, your nephew, your college uncle's former roommate, whoever, and built some knives with them. You think they might turn into heirlooms? They just might. You can learn how to build an heirloom at knifekits.com. With that, let's drop on into the live feed, and uh, I think you guys will really enjoy this discussion. 
And we are live. Uh, welcome, folks, to today's episode of the Survival Podcast. Uh, I'm happy to introduce our special guest, Charles Chuck Marone. How you doing today? And did I get that last name right? Yeah, Marone. No, it's all good. I'm doing great. Today is my uh, my oldest daughter's 18th birthday, so I just got oh, wow. in from spending the morning with her. Yeah, yeah. So close, nice. close synchronicity there. My son turned 33 yesterday. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm. Yeah. Uh, she's got one more year of high school left, and uh, in some ways, she's ready to 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 be an adult and move on. And in other ways, you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're getting there. I remember those years. Real quick, before Chuck and I start, we're going to be talking about strong towns today and what that means. Um, but I just want to remind you guys that are watching the video, especially after the live stream. I will never ask you for any personal information or private chat or anything like that in the comments below in any of these videos on any social media site. Don't trust it. There's imposters. It happens all the time. And people have actually been suckered into giving up personal information or money. And I don't want that to happen to anybody. And YouTube and other platforms don't care about you, so you'll have to care about yourself. Disclaimer done, man. With that, let's let's dig into this, Chuck. Um, when I saw this come through, I'm like, this would be a really interesting topic. We talk a lot about getting out of the cities. Um, you're trying to rebuild them. But I, I, I look at a lot of the cities that, and the towns that you are working in, and I think we still have a lot in common because I'm generally referring to what I refer to as like flashpoint cities, places that are in full-on decay mode. Uh, I've often said that like the kind of the small-town mindset, even in the larger city, is is a really great way to go too. But how did you even get involved with this? Like, I know your background is you're an, you were an engineer, and yeah. I'm guessing you just kind of saw things like we were doing things with yesterday's mentality with not thinking of today's and tomorrow's needs. Well, so I, I grew up on a small farm, and I live in a small town. And when I went to college, I got a civil engineering degree, and I, I went back to my small town and started doing municipal engineering work, so building roads and streets and sewer and water systems. And um, almost all of that was funded. I mean, it's funded by the government, right? So the government, mm-hmm. but local government. Uh, my assumption was that, like, our tax dollars paid for this stuff. But the reality is, is almost all of it was paid for either by the state and federal government or by private businesses who would come in and, and in a sense, gift, and we can put gift in air quotes, gift this infrastructure to the community as part of their development. So, for example, I worked with Menards. Menards is like a regional Home Depot here in uh, in the Midwest. Um, and Menards came in and Menards spent $2 million building out all the sewer and the water and all that. And I got paid to do that. I got paid as part of that. The city got all this infrastructure and it was, it was great. And uh, the community got a new Menards, which everybody was happy about. Um, but I started to run the numbers. Like I started to ask the question, well, we just got this free road as a city. Like I care about this city. I care about this place. Um, what's going to happen when we have to go out and fix this road? What's going to happen when we have to go out and repair this pipe? And I, I started to run the numbers. And when you looked at the new tax base that we got, assuming that Menards was going to be here forever, which we've seen that 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 doesn't happen, but let's assume that they were, the tax base we were going to get was going to be, you know, give us a a little bit of money. But the promise that we made that we'll go out and fix this stuff and take care of this stuff was was many times more than that. Sometimes five times, sometimes 10 times, sometimes 40 times more than the money that we were going to bring in in this development. 
And, and that's what really got me started. I, I, I looked at it and said, we're actually growing our cities into default. We're growing them into insolvency. And uh, everything just kind of took off from there. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. You, you make me think way back into my youth when I was in uh, the army in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, I was part of a project down in Honduras and we went in and we built like mm. 12 miles of road in the middle of the jungle for these people. And this was a, yeah. a gravel road, but this was done by a large engineering uh, deployment. It was not just plow a, a dirt road through. This was very well done, big concrete culverts and, things like that. Yeah. And when we were done with it. We were pretty proud of what we had done. And um, it connected these two areas that really they could get through, but they were like donkey pass and they were driving trucks on them. And like, this is going to change the world for these people. And I talked to a guy that had been there like maybe a, a decade after I was there and we had finished it. And he said it was pretty much destroyed from flooding and things like that, even with all the great work we did. And the thing was the local people, could not afford it. And I guess that's really obvious in a third world environment, but maybe not so obvious in small town America, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and even, um, you know, I think small town America is one thing. Uh, you know, the suburbs that surround every city, you know, we, we don't think of ourselves as third world here. And I, I, I get that. I mean, we have a very high standard of living. Um, but when you look at the, 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 you know, the fact that you have a half million dollar home, that requires a quarter million dollars of public infrastructure just to have the home there. Um, the math on that stops working really, really quickly uh, because you, you, you can't generate enough tax base from it. And so we, you, the, the, the Honduras example is a really good one. I was in the national guard. Um, so no deployments to uh, central America for me, but you know, I, I, I worked with the engineers, my group, my battalion, uh, I was an 88 Mike, a truck driver, and okay. we did our training with some of the some of the engineers. And yeah, I mean, the army spares no expense. I mean, we go in and build amazing stuff, right? We build great things, but the army actually goes out then and has this huge budget to maintain this stuff. Yeah, and maintaining it not only requires a lot of money, but when you're talking about a place like Honduras. Uh, requires a lot of people time, a lot of resources, a lot of expertise. Um, you go out to the small towns and the suburbs of, of the U.S., even go into the central cities of the U.S., and we don't have uh, not only the budget, uh, but in a lot of ways we lack kind of the nuanced sophistication to maintain this stuff to the degree that it does. You, you build it, and it doesn't really require any attention for the first five years, the first 10 years. But if you ignore it during that time, what you find is that it falls apart really quickly. And this is a, this is a problem we see happening in infrastructure all over the place because everybody wants the new project. Everybody wants the big ribbon cutting, the big investment, the splashy thing. Uh, but you're in a sense saddling all these communities with liabilities that they, they can't take care of. And of course that creates weak communities, weak towns, weak cities. And, and what you're doing, you refer to as strong towns. So yeah. what? is a strong town. Well, at its very core, a strong town is a place that can take care of its core infrastructure needs without needing outside support and bailout. So if we if we say we're going to have a water system and we're going to get drinking water to people that they can use, and we're going to have a fire system that will actually have fire at your hydrant that will suppress a fire, um, 
a strong town is a place that can provide those things without having to have the state bail them out, the federal government bail them out, some some new generation of kind of Ponzi scheme development to cash flow the old things that they said they would do uh, without having to take massive amounts of debt on that they have no tax base to, to actually repay. Um, so a strong town is capable of, mm. in a sense, taking care of themselves. Okay. And that, that doesn't seem like a very high standard, right? But the actual number of cities in the U.S. that can do that is approaching zero, if not zero. Yeah, I would. I, I can't think of one. Not not a city that I could name that I that, that maybe there's some that are more resilient. But if I know their names, it's because I either lived there or I visited. Like cities that I would be like, I probably name you know a hundred major cities. Yeah. Just off the top of my head, I can't I can't think of one of them I would even dare to even bother examining to see if they could take care of themselves. You know, Cleveland, Ohio, or Atlanta, Georgia, forget it. I mean, just there's no way they could possibly run their city on their own. And I it, guess that's what you're kind of setting as a bar, to be able to run your city on your own. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if, if we take a place like Cleveland, uh, or we take a place like I, I write in my first book about this little town, Reamer, Minnesota, that I did this project in, um, they have very different problems, but they wind up in the same place, right? Hmm. Cleveland, if you look back in, in the historic photos of Cleveland, Cleveland is actually an amazing city. Uh, it had a, a, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of tax base. Um, you know, it, it was, I think, if you went back 100, 120 years, you, you would say had all the features of a strong town and sure. certainly had a, a, a thing about, you know, getting better, becoming a better place. Uh, when we look at Cleveland today, Cleveland has gutted itself. I mean, Cleveland went in its core neighborhoods, ran highways through them, ripped down over half the buildings, uh, and let the rest of it go into decline. And in a sense, drove up their costs of doing business while also, de- de- you know, driving down the value of their tax base. Sure. And that is just a, a recipe That's for- suicide. Yeah, that's su- that's financial suicide. When and I was what there, it does I is think 2002, I think I heard people were refer- people that lived there referring to Cleveland as mistake by the lake. That's I, bad yeah, I've heard people that people talk that way about you, you know. Yeah, and and when you you know if you went to the early 1900s, this is one of the most successful cities yes. in America. I mean, it really was a very wealthy place. Um, the mistakes, and I I've heard that that joke too, and it's sad because it's. It's <laughs> what they did was suicide. It was it was self harm. So it yeah. was a series of bad policy choices and bad mistakes that have created this. Um, you know, put them in a situation where now, yeah, they're they're extremely fragile. They cannot survive uh, without a complete rethink of their existence, uh, and and even that would require massive federal government infusions. Um, the state of Ohio is also financially a basket case. And so it's not like the state can come and bail you out. And yeah, this, this puts everybody who lives in Cleveland, um, whether they are aware of it or not, whether they live in a nice neighborhood or not, or, or what have you in a very precarious position because they rely on the city to be competent, right? Like they rely on the city to maintain the road. They rely on the city to provide fresh drinking water and to take care of the sewage when it leaves their home and, and, and all these things that make living in a city possible. And the city does not have the capacity to actually do it without massive bailouts and subsidies. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, you, you go to the uh, other end of the spectrum. I was going to say this little city of Reamer that I work for, population a little over 300, and you wind up with the opposite kind of problem. Instead of gutting itself, uh, what they have done, and this is really the story of small towns, uh, again, go back 100 years and you had a city that had to be, in a sense, financially viable or it would have gone away. I mean, there was no one propping up small town America in the early 1900s. Um, but then after World War II, there were all these incentives for the city. Uh, here, we can, we, we have this incentive for you to build a bunch of sewer pipe out, you know, a mile out of town and you can get a gas station out there and a dollar store. We've got, uh, incentive for you to put in a new neighborhood out on the edge of the city and we can help pay for the sewer and water. And we'll do this because we're trying to help small towns. And what happened in most small cities is that you just quadrupled or, or 10 X the amount of liability that they have, the amount of stuff that the community has agreed to take care of. Uh, while in most cases only maintaining your existing, you know, population. Hmm. So you look at my city, my city, uh, Brainerd, Minnesota has the same population we had at the end of world war two. We have 10 times the amount of area. We have uh, almost 20 times the amount of pipe. So when you think about like the road miles per person, it's uh, it was very minimal at the end of World War Two. Now it's uh, it's massive. It's a couple hundred feet per person, which there's just you know, there's no way over the course of your life you're going to contribute that much taxes to the city to maintain that much roadway. So there's there's really two approaches to dealing with this. And one is really a centralized approach and one's a decentralized <laughs> approach. Right. So we can put put people closer together and build towns that share infrastructure more efficiently, or people can be responsible for their own infrastructure. I, I just spent almost $4,000 to replace a well pump and do some upgrades to my well, but I'm no burden, right, to, to, to Tarrant County, Texas at all for my water usage. And it's expensive, but the last pump lasted 22 years. If you, if you can handle your water for $275 a year, I think that's a reasonable amount to pay now, a lot of people be in a position where they can't handle that all of at once, and that's kind of centralized solutions allow you to parcel out expense. But I guess you have to find the balance between those two types of approaches. Well, let me let me back up even further because okay. I think you're right in a sense, but I think that that oversimplifies slightly. Um, so I, I like I said, I grew up on a farm. Uh, we had our well, we had a septic tank. Um, we had a, you know, disposal field. Um, we even burned some of our own garbage. I mean, it was, <laughs> this was, right. this was out in the middle of nowhere. We had 80 acres, right? Like we were yeah. out in the middle of nowhere. And when it would snow, cause I live in Minnesota and it would snow, uh, the road in front of our house was like, was a, was a city road, but it was like two tire tracks through the woods. I mean, it might be two or three days before we're plowed out. So you were, you were on your own and you would, you adjusted to that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you may do, um, my parents didn't pay a lot of taxes to the city, but we didn't require a lot of services, right? Like I said, there was not really a road. There was no municipal sewer water, none of that. We didn't need it. We get plowed every now and then not a big deal. Um, if you went into town at the same time, like if you went into the city, it's not that the city was super high density and massively compact, it, it was way more than out in the country, right? Like it was people yeah. live closer together. Um, but what you also had in like the, the core downtown 
was very intense, right? Buildings that shared common lot lines, but you also had nice streets there and nice sidewalks and you had the full uh, firefighting system because the buildings were so close. But when you went out into the neighborhoods around the downtown, these were still city blocks, right? Like gridded blocks. Yeah. But a lot of those places too had their own well. Uh, they yeah. all had dirt streets. Um, there was not this massive public investment in infrastructure. Um, you basically had urban areas and you had rural areas. And this was yep. true in big cities and this was true in, in small towns. It was this after World War II period of time where we said, well, people can live kind of a rural lifestyle, have their own big lot, have their own spot, their own place. But we're going to do it with urban infrastructure, with urban utilities. And in a sense, we were, we thought we were rich enough or we were rich enough or we could generate the money or what, however we did. We, 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 we lost fact of the reality that in a rural area, the burden of doing all that stuff is shifted to the property owner. And in an urban area, the burden is shifted to the people who live in that community. And what we said is that, well, if we can just have, quote unquote, the government, the state government, yeah. the federal government, if we can just have them take care of it, then we don't have to worry about making it actually work. And, and quite frankly, that's the last 75 years of American development is, is um, doing stuff that is financially not viable because someone else was paying for it. Does no. that make sense? No, it does. And there was the explosion of the suburbs after World War II, and mm -hmm. it, it was coupled right in with the development of the interstate uh, system uh, with mm -hmm. Eisenhower. And it created this mindset that everybody could have kind of this kind of Lord of the Manor look, right? You, like, yes. Like, like, you know, the Knights went out to, to Asia and they came back to Scotland and England and they, they emulated the whole Taj Mahal thing and they put sheep around it and it maintained the grass instead of the virgins cutting it with the, the clippers. So we made little mini versions of that and gave people lawnmowers and said, you know, have a barbecue with your friends. And it seems so much like it is Americana today. We actually, it's still there, but yet we wish it was there, right? It's, it's almost the mind, right. like we lost the, the one thing I would say about the time, there was a lot of neighborhood cohesion back then. Um, I grew up, outside, but not separated. Like we had, yeah, houses that were maybe an acre, acre and a half. Uh, we knew everybody on the street. You walked up and down the street and took stuff from extra stuff from the garden and gave it away. Um, and like you were talking about the pipes and stuff like that. Like I remember every house on that street had a uh, septic and it wasn't really anything complicated because the whole place was shale. It was like, it, like the land was a septic tank. All you had to do was set it up and it was, you know, systems didn't need to be pumped. They ran for years. And then one day the, the county said, well, everybody has to tie into the new, uh, sewer system. And this is, right. this is like ebbing in toward when I was, you know, in my twenties, like the nineties. Did this happen? Yes. And now they have to make, like you said, now they, they never needed to do it, but now they have to maintain it. So let's let's take two parallel tracks going on here because okay. you've described two things that I think are very related, but we often don't think of them in the same way. One is a, a kind of a physical tract of the way we live, and the other yeah. one is this cultural track Correct. of how we act within the way we live. If you look at the the physical track, what you see is that. Um, at the, at the end of World War II, all the economists around FDR and Truman were freaked out about us going back into the Great Depression. 
right? Yes. When, when, when the war ends and we demobilize all these troops and we stop all these industries building tanks and ships and all this stuff, we're just going to go right back to 1935 and we're going to have 25% unemployment and, and all that. And they said, basically, let's take all of this industrial capacity. Let's take all this and let's just build a new version of America, right? Yeah. Let's just go out. We'll build highways. We'll build, build suburbs. Better. Yeah. build. <laughs> actually, that's what it was at the time, yeah. right? Yeah. It was this new vision for America, right? And what you, what you describe is like, we're sitting here and we don't have sewer. And then all of a sudden they come to us and say, well, you got to hook up. What, what, what happened at a period, after a period of time is that, that boom that we got from doing that, uh, is instant. You know, we start building suburbs in the fifties and all of a sudden you get all this growth and all this tax base and all this wealth. But then the bill comes due in the sixties and the seventies. And all of a sudden now you need new entrants into this system. You need new people coming in to pay for the old stuff. And so they go look around and say, well, who's next? Well, these people are out on the edge. Let's hook them up to the sewer. Well, these people are out here. Let's hook them up to the water. And you see this track happening over and over and over. Uh, I started as an engineer in 1995. And, and basically, that's what we did in the early days of my career is we went around and said, well, these people are close to the system, but not yet. Let's hook them up. Yeah. And it wasn't the economics of doing that that made sense. It was the Ponzi scheme of it. It was the cash flow. Um, you could finance their stuff with debt, but you would get the cash up front and you could use the cash up front to pay to fix the old stuff. All right. Culturally, at the same time, what you have is you had a, in a sense, a cohesive system, the way you describe it. Yeah. You could go out your front door. You knew the people around you. Uh, you, 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 you had a garden and you gave stuff away to your neighbor. And if you needed a thing, a cup of sugar and you didn't have it, you went over and they would give it to you. That, that type of neighborhood cohesion, we kind of look at and say, Oh, isn't that, isn't that charming? Like those people were, what, what happened was those people of that era had gone through the depression together. They had gone through World War II together. They lived in coherent neighborhoods together. And so when they started building in this new kind of spread out decentralized way, their, in a sense, cultural overlay, the way they culturally understood the world was that way. But as time has gone on, we've, in a sense, lost that muscle memory. And you see us becoming more fearful, more inward looking, less engaging of our neighbors, less trusting of our neighbors. And, and you've seen that kind of, uh, coattails of community cohesion devolve and devolve and devolve over time. I think we can argue and we can have discussions about how government programs and other things have, have increased that, how failures in, uh, other institutions like churches and, and what have you, have uh, have increased that and accelerated it. But the reality is our development pattern is des- the, the marketing brochure of our development pattern is social isolation. Mm. I'll sell you a house with a fenced in backyard uh, with a garage in front. You never have to talk to your neighbors. You never have to meet with anybody. You never have to interact with anybody. That is what we are selling now as the American standard of living. And culturally, it, it doesn't make any sense. You it's know, not how humans work. It's weird. It's almost like there was a time where this two, these two things existed simultaneous, and it wasn't as much generational as it was, I think, neighborhood in of itself. Yeah. I, I, the place I'm talking about is in a, a rural mining community of, of Pennsylvania is where I actually grew up. Yep. And the town that was down from where my grandparents lived was called Minersville. 
And there okay. was a little, little, little subdivision, if you want to call it that. I don't know, a little area. Like in Pennsylvania, everything's a town, a borough, a city. Everything has a name, even if it's not really. You go across the street, you're in a different village or whatever. And you, there was a little round top area up the top with some sports fields and stuff. And it was called New Minersville. And okay. I had a girlfriend up there and I, I could walk around that place. I tell, could tell you every damn family that lived up there, even though I didn't live there. My parents bought a place mm-hmm. in Plasma, which is five miles away. Brand new development. I've been to that part of the world. Okay. I was just looking where it was, and I've, yeah. I've been there. Yeah, I right. know what you're talking about. So they mm-hmm. bought this brand new house in Plasma. I mean, they were all just being built. Beautiful houses. Typical suburb, though. Everybody laid out uniform lots. Beautiful walking trail behind it. I mean, it was, it was nice. I, could, I know one family that I could still tell you the name of all these years later that lived there. It's only because I went to school with the girl that lived there in that house. Nobody on that street ever communicated with each other. And five miles away, the same people that lived there knew everybody over there. Right. And it's a really strange, I've never really thought about that, like, you know, parallel dichotomy right there like that. And that, well, that probably is kind of where the split really, I don't think began, but accelerated. And that would have been the mid-80s. mid-80s. Well, let me throw you another accelerant on the table. Um because when you look at pre-Great Depression development, what you would have with cities was cities that grew, in a sense, incrementally. You would start very small in a neighborhood, and things would start to kind of fill out and fill in. So in my town, the the neighborhood to the north of the core downtown uh, 100 years ago would have had these small little houses. And over time... Uh, as the neighborhood became more valuable, people would add on to those houses. You'd put a second story on. The neighbor would come over and help you put an addition on. And, and you can go walk through this neighborhood today and see how, in a sense, it was designed to evolve and thicken up over time as the neighborhood became more prosperous. On the outskirts of town then, we went in the 1960s and we built whole developments. And we built them all at once. We'd go out and build 50 homes, 100 homes, all at the same time, right? And I had friends living in one of these neighborhoods growing mm-hmm. up, and you would go to one friend's house, and then you would go to the next friend's house, and it was the exact same house, like the exact same floor plan, yeah. exact same house. Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, right? Yep. So you just built it over and over and over, right? Yep. Um, the problem is, is that when you go and build 100 houses at the same time, they all look really good on day one. It's brand new, right? This was the middle class, nice neighborhood. Today, it's the junky rundown neighborhood because zoning locked these places into place. You weren't allowed to shift and evolve and change and thicken up. A, a single family home could never become a duplex. That was illegal. You could never like build a thing on the back and let your mother-in-law live there. That was illegal. And so what happened is that after 20 years, 25 years, everybody's house, because they were built at the same time, everybody's siding needed to be fixed at the same time. Everybody's roof would go bad at the same exact time. Everybody's appliances would start to fail at the same time. And so what happened is this neighborhood that was like really nice would all start to go in decline simultaneously without any mechanism to actually thicken it up and make better use of it. If you've got the money to fix your roof, go fix your roof. But if you don't have the money to fix your roof, what people often do is they say, well, I I can't fix the roof, but I've got an extra bedroom. And so I'm going to make a door on the back and make that into efficiency apartment and rent that out and then use that cash flow to fix my roof. Sure. Well, 
zoning says you can't do that. Like that's illegal. You can't do that. And so what happened is that these neighborhoods all simultaneously go into decline. And then the wealthy people, as this is happening, pick up and move to the next place. And so you get this kind of rolling decline. So not only is it the situation you're talking about where like nobody knows each other, but you're actually living in neighborhoods that are distressed with no real mechanism for fixing them. And that is, you know, in many ways, that is the the rolling story of decline that we see in, in Cleveland and on the outskirts of Cleveland and, and really, you know, the small towns of Pennsylvania and, and everywhere. Well, it, it's, you know, it makes you think of fences. This is a big thing around here. Everybody has a privacy fence in the subdivisions. Sure. About where I live, you're either barbed wire, chain link, something, pipe, something like that. But in the subdivisions, all six-foot wood privacy fences. They last about 12 years. If you take really good care of them, maybe 15, and they need to be replaced. Yeah. They start laying it. Well, when I was a kid growing up, if you saw a neighbor with a problem, you went over and said, can we help? And if you yeah. couldn't help by yourself, you go down to the church, you go down to the fire station, the VFW, whatever, and said, hey, Bill needs help, and help came. And now right. what happens is a guy sees a fence leaning, calls code enforcement, and says, hey, my neighbor's fence is leaning over. Code enforcement gives him a fine. Well, that doesn't help anybody, right? And then everybody, and then eventually Bill doesn't pay it. Code enforcement doesn't do anything. And everybody says to hell that everybody's fences go to hell. And, you know, maybe the solution would be taking the fences down in certain areas and opening the place up, but we don't think that way. And we certainly don't think about helping each other. And, you know, with that, one of the things I picked up on, I was listening to some of your stuff, and it was something to the effect of we grow our cities like cornfields. Mm-hmm. And that we should be growing them more like forests, which is very mm-hmm. much in my permaculture ethos. I feel the same way. When, when you're talking about it, is that kind of where you're coming from with this kind of rubber stamped, you know, like manufactured town. I watched the, the, the building boom happen here in DFW in the, in the 90s, and it was exactly what you said. There'd be four models of houses and brand-new development, 30 acres of houses, and ka-chunk, 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 and the only thing that changed was the color of the brick and the color of the siding, and it's the same house all the way down, big giant cul-de-sac, and it is very cornfield-like. It's all straight lines. You're an engineer, so, I mean, efficiency. There is efficiency in that as far as laying out infrastructure. That's exactly um, right. Especially centralized infrastructure. But is, is that what you mean? Like a forest grows in, you know, layers. It's got a canopy and a subcanopy, and it's got an edge effect, and it, it, it's, a, a, it's a multi-species ecosystem instead of a mm-hmm. sterile ecosystem. Is that kind of where you're coming from? It, it's exactly. So the, the lament that you had about the code enforcement people, is an important one, I think, to demonstrate this because if, if you look at local government, local governments at its best is the way that we coordinate together in a place. Mm-hmm. Local government at its worst is an enforcement arm of state and federal policy. Correct. Right. So when we look at the code enforcement person, if we were to think back in, you know, uh, uh, again, I'll go back a hundred years just as a way to, to think about this. Um, I think you're very correct. And we're not being overly nostalgic here to say if a person had a problem, you would have social clubs that would step in. You would have churches that would step in. You would have, uh, you know, neighbors that would step in. Um, and that's not to say that problems didn't fester. There certainly were large problems, but 
we would often turn to local government to do things that we collectively uh, needed done in our place, collect the garbage, uh, you know, shovel the streets off, do that kind of stuff. Um, at the post-World War II era, local government became this implementation arm of state and federal policy. So we want to grow. We want to have uh, zoning codes and subdivision standards. We want developers from the outside to be able to come in with capital and produce these things over and over and over in an efficient way. And so here's a model code for you. Here's a model plan for you. Here's a model. Uh, this At the same time, the state would come into cities and say, we're going to strip from you all the power that you have and only allow you to do certain things that we say are, are okay in terms of how you tax and how you regulate and, and what you do. And so local government became very responsive to the state. Um, if you go into city hall today, uh, you will find a lot of people who are really interested in what's going on at the state capitol that are not really that interested in what's going on in their neighborhoods. And that's, that's, that's very backward. And the result of that is that what you get instead of the development of a community happening from the bottom up, like a forest mm-hmm. where, you know, a big tree will grow, but a lot of shrubs will grow and a lot of things will fill in and you kind mm-hmm. of make good use of the resources you have, but not in a hyper efficient way, in an organic way. Instead, you get this top-down policy, which is we're going to go out and build cornfields. We're going to go out and subdivide, build homes, bam, 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 and do this at scale across a broad area. And what you what you gain in that is you gain efficiency. You gain uh, the ability to grow very quickly, get a lot from your resources in a short period of time. But you give up adaptability, resiliency, uh, you know, and, and overall strength in the system. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to ag tie in. Uh, I recently covered the evolution of the modern diet and how it goes back in many ways to what happened in the late sixties, early seventies and ag commissioner Earl Butts, who famously told farmers in many different ways and speeches, get big or get out, right? Grow or go away. And yeah. it was strongly fueled by profit motivation, and it was strongly fueled by an idea that we had to grow. It was nest at all costs. But it was also kind of fueled by debt and easy money. And it, it fit straight in with the decoupling, the last vestiges of the gold standard, Nixon closing the gold window, and then gold be- totally decoupling in 75 when it went back to private ownership. And it feels like a lot of this urban development, followed the same mentality and the same path when the money just flowed like from the faucet. And and then th- these towns that had no real need of this growth expansion mentality felt like they had to and they did it. And your bureaucrats today, your politicians today that are worried about the state, it's because they have to now, like, that whole apparatus is bigger and it needs to justify its existence. Like, to me, government is like a life form and it, it doesn't ever want to die. And so it doesn't ever want to downsize. It doesn't want to ever give up a power. It doesn't want to ever give up a responsibility. It always wants to maintain and grow. And everybody in government is judged on if you if you manage more people next year and spend more money next year than you're doing this year, you're a good bureaucrat. You're doing your job. Where in the in, in the private sector, and there could be abuses there too. But if if I'm in the private sector and I'm spending more money and managing more people and not making a better return, I get fired. Yeah, it's a complete conversion. And it's it's it does seem like there is this parallel between ag 
and this whole thing. And of course, that moved a lot of farmers into the cities as well. You know, I mean, yeah. I feel like what you're describing to me is less public sector, private sector. Yeah. And more big versus small. No, correct. Or, or, yeah. or big and top down versus small and bottom up. Right. Um, because I, my, my wife has been in newspaper for, for decades and she started off at a family newspaper and the family newspaper was very happy to do a good service in the community sell ads, make a profit, you know, and, and they, they were very content to, in a sense, kind of be at a, just a, a, an ongoing viable level. Uh, but the newspaper sold to a larger corporation and the larger corporation was acquiring these local newspapers. Um, within five years, it was closed down. It was consolidated. Uh, they, uh, you know, started producing the paper less frequently. It's smaller. Uh, they laid off half the people um, it, because the things that they're sensitive to is we have growth targets every year. We have, uh, you know, revenue targets. We have expansion targets. And it is, in a sense, debt that has enabled that uh, lack of uh, lack of restraint and that shift in emphasis. It allows the big to, in a sense, feast on the small because the big have access to ridiculous amounts of capital at you know, subsidized rates. I, I look at the gold standard thing in the seventies and I feel like that was a, that was a turning point in this suburban experiment, in this post-war experiment. Um, we had this system in place, the gold standard and like it or not, it was designed to be a check on mm-hmm. our avarice. It was designed to be this warning system that said, if you go beyond this point, uh, you're going to experience some real pain because there's a, a, a real honest constraint here that is going to constrain you from doing crazy stuff. And in the early 1970s, we decided that the pain was more than we wanted and that we were going to, you know, we wanted to do a lot of crazy stuff and not have the negative painful feedback. And I mean, you, if you study complex adaptive systems, you recognize that you can put off painful feedback. Like that is something that you can do, but you wind up doing it at the expense of others. And then ultimately the system doesn't work. And then there's huge expense all around. And I, I kind of feel like if you, if you look at that break from the seventies, you, you, you've seen these charts where, and it's funny because I've seen right-wing people do it and I've seen left-wing people do it and they both have crazy conclusions. Yeah. It's, wow, productivity uh, and wages, uh, you know, what it's, they're titled like, what happened in 1972? And it's all this like, uh, boy, I can't figure out what went on. I can't figure out what happened. Uh, wages have stagnated. Debt has gone way up. Uh, productivity has shifted. And it's like, well, it's, it's obvious. Like the last bit of constraint we had uh, went away. And now um, we have a system that in many ways is fully predatory. I mean, I, I don't think you can look at the the succession of SNL housing boom, dot com oh, yeah. boom, uh, housing, you know, uh, predatory subprime, subprime yeah. crisis. And now this kind of like everything boom we have and say that, you know, this is not a system that has gone uh, thermonuclear in its predatory nature. Definitely. I mean, I'm not 
pushing us back to the gold standard. I think we're onto a new level in technology personally. Uh, but gold was the governor of governments. That's, that's yeah. what it was. And I, and like you, you're saying about not really, I, I'm not giving the private sector a pass either because the, the, the thing that fuels the private sector is the government money, which is actually the stolen people's money, which is now the stolen money of the third generation of grandchildren that will be born and inherit the debt. So like all these subdivisions, they weren't built by government, but they were largely funded or incentivized by government. And it's the two collaborating together that have done it. And it's, it, it's, it's almost inevitable when you look at the setup that you were just discussing that this would be the result. Yeah. Like, no, I, I, I think that's right. 2020, right. It's easy to say now, but if you really look at it, you go, well, what else do you think would, would have happened? Right. Like, you know, well, if you, if you, okay. So complexity theory is, is really fascinating stuff. And I'm, I'm not going to pretend I'm a, I'm an expert on complexity theory. Uh, there's obviously people who study this deeper than I do, but there's a few axioms that are true that I think are simple enough to understand where we can, we can talk about them. And the one is this transition from complex to complicated. Um, if you give a complex system an overabundance of resources, it starts to act complicated, not complex. And let me put this in like very simple terms. If you give people stupid money, they start acting stupid. They, they stop having to make hard choices. Right? Yes. So if I'm a local government and I can get money for a bridge – and I go out and put a bridge in and it's in the wrong spot. I am like, okay, fine. I'll tear the bridge down or I'll just build another one in a different spot. Like not a big deal. Cause I can go get money for a bridge. It, it is same with a road, same with a budget, same with a subdivision. It, 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 it's not that the people in the system are not smart, but the system does not require them to be smart or to act smart. Or behave or to smartly, right? Behave smartly. Right. Because there's really no, immediate consequence or immediate like constraint on resources that requires us to actually be really smart. And so what happens is that systems with an abundance of resources stop acting complex. They start acting complicated, which if you look at our development pattern, it's complicated. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's not complex. It doesn't adapt and evolve and have feedback. You just repeat it over and over and over. And ultimately Complex, you know, when you strip out the complexity, when you run out of resources, the complicated nature goes away and it becomes complex again. And we can think of that economically as a depression or a correction. Um, I think we can think of it socially or culturally as the same kind of thing, a, a, a correction. And that is, it's kind of a scary thing because the further you get from Median, the further you get from being centered and having good feedback, the crazier it becomes, the, the, the worse that correction ultimately has to be to fix things. Right, I'm going to fight that's what myself. keeps me up at night, right? I'm going to fight myself here because there's like 10 things in my head I want to keep. Yeah, go ahead. That, that are wrong. Like you're mentioning that and I'm thinking drainage and how complex they've made the drainage issues and how simple solutions have been employed in places like Tucson where they get, you know, monsoon rains a few times a year with they cut the curbs and they put the water in the ground where it belongs and they stop having runoff problems. Like, and then it grows trees and then like, so there's, but we're just, yeah, we're just hammering on the problem. And I, and I have you on today 
you're from strongtowns.org. Let, let's talk about the solutions that you guys are proposing and implementing and how you're working with people to make towns uh, stronger and more resilient and, and make more sense because it's, good Lord, it's an uphill battle. I think that's why so many of us have taken an alternate approach like, like I have, and that is basically like if I lived two miles from here, my life would be totally different. I do whatever I want. I don't ask permission for anything, but I care about the type of thing you're talking about. And I want to see people able to do it. It just seems like some places are gone and some places maybe they're not gone, but doing this is hard. So what do you guys like? What does it look like when you target a place and say, this is this is where we're going to take a stand and try to make a difference? Yeah, it it looks uh, it. it I'm going to say this, and I, I think you will appreciate this because we can step back and look at this huge problem. Um, and and anything you propose is going to be small in comparison to that. Um, but the reality is, is that we need people to become a little more adaptable and a little more resilient themselves, and then take that next step and get to know their neighbors. Uh, join with your neighbors to do things. We we always tell people that the very first step is getting, you know, getting into a neighborhood where you and your neighbors can build a little bit of your own resiliency. Um, I have, you know, I, I live in a small town. I know people who, from a survivalist standpoint, are like, I've got a, you know, I've got 10 guns and I got two years of food stockpiled and I got my own, you know, and I'm like, I, I don't think any of that beyond a certain base point matters, Right. Because at a certain, you know, yes, I'm one who has extra food stored. I'm one who has extra gasoline in the, in the, in, in, in the shed. I've, I've, you know, I've done like the base resiliency stuff, got a generator. Um, but I've, I think the more important thing is getting to know your neighbors because when things get difficult and difficult can be a whole big spectrum, difficult, the city's not maintaining my road or the sidewalk or what have you, or like the electricity and the power's out and we need to figure something out. There's a whole range of what difficult can mean. The people who actually are surrounded by others who not only are not going to harm them, but are actually going to be part of figuring out and making that solution happen are going to be way further ahead than the Lone Rangers and the people who are by themselves. And so I always tell people, start by getting to know your neighbors, get to know them, uh, learn who they are, figure out what you've got in common. And then if you do that, get to a point where you say, okay, what, what is the thing that we can do in our neighborhood to make this a little bit better place? And sometimes it's as simple as planting a tree, uh, to create a little bit of shade on the street. Sometimes it's, uh, doing something more complicated, but we try to get people working together at the block level because that's really where solutions emerge. It seems like there needs to be a bit of a strategic location selection for some of this, though, because I can just think of the average relatively new Dallas-Fort Worth suburb, and you can say all that stuff you want. I'm like, go ahead. Let's see it. And it's the way work. it's laid out and the, yeah. the, the overriding codes from the city and the county, you're – you're an ant pushing a bowling ball uphill and people say if you get enough ants, they can do it. But not when, as soon as you try, the county's going to come out and spray the ants with, with insecticide. Absolutely. Right? So, so like there has to be like, I see some of the stuff that's going on, for instance, in like the outer areas of Detroit. And mm -hmm. there's some really impressive projects being done. 
But it's like they picked the worst place where it was so bad that everybody just left. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of have this kind of, and I've seen people do things like they're selling, the cities are selling these houses for a few thousand bucks just to get somebody to take them. And they're buying like three houses, making one lot out of it, tearing two of them down and using them to help repair one. And they're putting in farmer's markets and stuff. And that's kind of when I look at what you're doing, like maybe not exactly that, but that type of mindset is kind of where I think there's a potential to do something. And you're right. It might look small compared to the total, but it's not small for the people that are directly impacted. And, And the more examples, then the larger you can make a movement grow. Yeah. So let's take Detroit because I think Detroit is a good way to think about this. Um, right now, the Detroit solution that is being imposed on Detroit, in a sense, is to do two things. One, let's have a billionaire invest a bunch of money in the core of the city and, and make that a nicer place. Yeah. And then let's get middle class and upper middle class people to build more stuff out on the edge in this style that needs the center but it has to go through miles and miles of stuff declining yeah. in order to, to make that work. Um, and I think that the people out on the edge, to me, that is the doomed land. Like I, I, if, if, if you're listening to this and like, that's the kind of place you live in, I think the first thing you can do to help your own resiliency is get out of that kind of place. Right. Um, if I look at Detroit and you said, Chuck, you're going to leave your town and you're going to move to Detroit today. I would look for a neighborhood that was in walking distance of the middle. Like I, I want to be near where the billionaires investing stuff, because at the very least I want the police and the fire department to show up when I need them. Right. And the thing about, you know, let me say this. Historically, if we look at cities and this is going to be a little coarse, but, but go with me here. Cities throughout all of human history were wealthy people surrounded by poor people. Yes. At the end of World War II, we said, well, cities are now going to be poor people surrounded by wealthy people. Correct. And with the break, yeah, yeah. With the breakdown of this complex, you know, this complicated system back into complexity, I think what you are going to see over time is that we revert back to the original wealthy people surrounded by poor people. Do you think it's going to be that or do you think it's going to be more like what you described? Because it's what I'm seeing now. I'm seeing. Wealthy people in the city, yep. poor people surrounding them, uh-huh. and then wealthy people surrounding them like a bullseye. And I, I think this is what's going to happen. I think that very outer part is the most fragile. Okay. And I think what's going to happen over the next generation is that – and I'm not saying this is a great solution, right? Uh, but I think that that ring around the rich people in the middle is going to get displaced. And I think the default in most cities is going to be poor people living in the furthest places away in really, really difficult straits with that first uh, kind of neighborhood ring around the core downtown being the place where uh, the, the middle class and the, 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 the slightly less wealthy live. And then yeah, there'll be people who developments around here, though, in the places you're describing. These are half million, seven hundred thousand dollar you know, I, I guess the only way that happens is like five families are living in one together or something. Cause I've, I've said, I, I did a show nine years ago called death of the suburbs. So yeah. we're, we're speaking the same language, but it's a little hard for me to get my head around the, the poor people displacing 
these people in what we call McMansions here, right? Like, yeah, I, and there's a lot of them. It's not like maybe I'm a little bit biased because of where I live. Like Dallas, Fort Worth, everywhere you turn around, there's a half million dollar house. Yeah, I but mean, they're crappy. They're, they're crappily oh, they're built. Shit. They're not. No, we, we, we yeah. will not disagree about that. They're garbage. They, right. they are they're garbage. Poorly, so, poorly constructed. Let me give you this bit of insight. And this is something that comes from engineering practice that I, I think a lot of people don't grasp. Um, the sewer and water systems in all these cities are based on extensions of the existing system. So if you go back to what the system was at the end of World War II, you'll see that the rich surrounded by poor, here's where the sewer system and the water system were. So everything out here, out on the edge, is an extension of that, right? Okay. I'm going to tell you right now, cities have the money and the capacity to maintain about 10% of their system. Okay. Okay. If you live five miles out and I live half a mile out, they have to fix me in order to get to you. Correct. Okay. They can't afford to fix me. They're never going to get to you. So I don't care if you build a $10 million house out there. Yeah. You're going to wind up on your own sewer system and your own well because ultimately there's going to be no mechanism to get sewer and water to you. It's just not going to happen. And, I can that with one. I'm not sure I get that when we're talking about a, a, a thousand half million dollar homes or 10,000 half million dollar homes collectively around these, these places. Like those people have to leave. Yeah. And they'll take the tax base with them before you know. I, <laughs> I actually think, I mean, you were getting very dark now, but I actually yeah. think that one of the industries over the next generation is going to be home salvage. Okay. Because I, I think that a lot of the, you know, the, the wiring in the wall, the piping, the countertops, I mean, whatever you can go in and salvage will have some value in other places, but it's just geographically not going to have a value in that place. Hmm. I mean, so where are all you, those people going to go? You can't cram them all in the cities. So, well, let me, let me, so let's not say cram them in the cities because I think that that, that, that closes people's minds who are listening right now. Um, Let's recognize that a city like Cleveland used to have five times the number of people living in it than it does today. Okay. Right? So what happened to Cleveland is that Cleveland emptied out, right? What happened to Philadelphia is Philadelphia emptied out. Correct. What happened to Minneapolis is that Minneapolis was like 1.2 million people and it's now 350,000. Um, a lot of the reason why that – if you if, – you and I would not want to live in Minneapolis of that day. We'd not want to live in Cleveland of that day because there was sewage in the street. It was a lot of, you know, uh, industry belching smoke. It was nasty, right? Mm-hmm. But put modern things into that city. You know, you're, you're not going to have the smoke problems. You're not going to have sewage in the street. You're not going to have horse manure all over. You, you're Go to a nice city that has a, a, a high population, and the high population actually is part of how it makes it nicer. Um, I'm going to say this, and this is going to – I know sometimes when I speak in, in, in the U.S., this yeah. is a hard thing to grasp. But you can go to Paris and walk around Paris and be absolutely enchanted by how beautiful it is and then step back and recognize that the actual number of people per square foot – is like 20 times 
what you would have in the biggest U.S. cities. So it's it's not a matter of cramming people in. It is a matter of design and making it really a very nice place to live. And that's a that is a that is a I think that that is one of our like challenges, right? Yeah, I, I would still tell you that there will never be a time when all people will want to live in a place like that. That's, that's no, but no, there, but there's I, a huge segment of society that wants nothing to do with high density. And I don't care how much paint you put on it, how pretty you make it. They want yeah. nothing to do with it and they never will. But let's, let's, let's acknowledge that, right? Like I agree with you. My parents still live on the farm that was homesteaded by my great, great grandparents. Yep. 80 acres. And you know what? A hundred years from now, I hope someone lives on that farm, but you recognize what they do, right? They have a garden, they have a chicken coop, they have a couple cows. They, they, you know, they're in their seventies. They actually live off the farm. Sure. Right? So I think what, what, what I'm suggesting is that right now in the system, we have three choices. Choice number one is rural living, right? Okay. Which is a very self-sufficient, resilient, uh, kind of lifestyle. You have urban living, which is a, a very, uh, you know, we want to say high density, lots of stuff. And then we have this third option, which is have your cake and eat it too. Live a subsidized life on a, you know, modest sized lot where you don't have a lot of privacy, but you've got a little bit. You pay a lot of taxes, but not nearly enough to maintain all the stuff you need. You've got a big house, but it's made out of sheetrock and chipboard. So it's kind of crappy. You, this medium. And what I'm saying is that that medium is what's not viable and what will need to go away. And so, yeah, there's going to be tons of people who want to live a self-sufficient rural lifestyle. And amen, like I might join them. I actually uh, like my life here in a small town. Um, but that medium option is what's going to be missing. Yeah. And that's, I, you I know, 80 percent of America. Option. There might be a fourth option, though, and that is more of what you're talking about. At a much smaller scale, the, the the hundreds of reasonably sized cities and towns that well, people wouldn't be able to just name. So towns that are fifteen twenty thousand people, and following this model of people living more in town, having you know being able to walk to the store, knowing their neighbors. Yes. Because I, I'll tell you that I am highly skeptical that you're going to have renewal in San Francisco. Totally. Or I'm Los Angeles yeah. or Seattle or Portland. And it may be, but if they're drug dealers, they're not laying on the ground under the overpass yet, even though people living there are like, that's kind of like, like, or drug users, like they have not hit the absolute rock bottom where people completely leave and say, I'm done with this place in droves enough yet to fix their problems. So it seems to me like a, you know, a small Midwest town of 20,000 people has a much better shot of building something like this than, uh, you know, urban Detroit. Let me, let me agree with you, but let me give you two other little, like, I think sticking yeah. points. Um, I don't think it's that the places haven't hit rock bottom yet and therefore have made changes. I think what it is, is that, uh, the alternate is being subsidized and being kind of like strung along. 
So people have not had to seriously vest in fixing Portland, in fixing San Francisco and actually like doing something there. They, they can just walk away and go to something else. Um, my city is 14,000 people. I actually think that this is like the most viable kind of place to be in. But what, what I'm talking about when I say urban, yeah. I, in my mind, I don't mean just San Francisco, New York, Chicago. Okay. I actually mean urban areas, which think of it. I, 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 the urban rural thing is like, I think what you should think of it as a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You're, I think people are either going to live in a, Isolated, rural, self-sufficient kind of living, uh, where, where they they feed themselves and they take care of themselves themselves, right? Um, or B, neighborhood style living. Okay. And that could be in a very big city, or it could be in a very small city, or it could be on the outskirts of a city where a neighborhood has coalesced. But when you talk about farmers markets and what you're talking about is an ecosystem that sustains a neighborhood. So people living in a neighborhood are going to get their food from people grown on the edge of the neighborhood and they're going to, uh, you know, have their capital flow around within that neighborhood, not just be driven out. And, you know, there's going to be less Walmart and more, uh, you know, calling up the neighbor to, to help out and borrow his hammer, that kind of thing. Gotcha. Yeah, because, I mean, when I talk about these subdivisions, all these big houses, if you wanted to do what you're talking about, you can't do it. But if you gave me like, if you made me king, right? Not yeah, town councilor yeah. king, where I can actually do some shit. Well, I can yeah. do it. It's just going to mean about 20% of those houses are going to disappear. And then we're going to build that infrastructure to support that neighborhood as a neighborhood versus as an isolated island. But I just, I just know that it's not going to happen. And that's why I basically agree with you. A lot of these really expensive looking suburbs are going to collapse. Um, yeah. I think you've pr- proposed a, a means by which because I don't see a bunch of poor people like squatting in these houses. I, 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 there, there's too much value there, but a salvage that that's dark, but it's, it, it's actually something I said that a long time ago, you may see half of these houses disappear. Yeah. I, I think half of them disappear is a, is a metric that I have in my mind too. Okay. You, we have a hard time getting our minds around this, but recognize that the people who lived in the 1920s, if you would have gone to them and said, in a generation, this neighborhood that you're living in, where your church is and your school is and your, you know, your parents live up the street and your job is over here, um, you guys are going to pick up and leave and you're going to move out to that cornfield five miles out there. Yeah. And these, this neighborhood is going to implode to where you can't give away the house you're in. They would have said that that's insane. That's crazy. Like that will never happen. And of course we look at, of course it happened. Right. Of course it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, the person who just built the McMansion, uh, and has got, you know, $1.2 million into it is paying massive amounts of taxes. They're looking around saying, I pay huge amounts of taxes. Why can't they maintain my street? Like, I don't get this. Why wouldn't it work? Like, I just want to stay here. And they don't recognize that they're dependent on, some insolvent neighborhood maintaining a pipe three miles away in order for them yeah. just to have drinking water. You know, I think there might be some regional components to this, like speed of decay, because a lot of yeah. the problems you're take, talking about here, when I lived in the Northeast, I saw them even in relatively new developments. We're down here. The same decay happens, but it's much slower. We're flatter. So there's less erosion. The water is alkaline versus acidic. So there's less corrosion. Uh, we don't get snow. 
right? Mm-hmm. So you put a road in here, you put a, a neighborhood in here, 25 mm-hmm. years, there might be a pothole here and there, right? Mm-hmm. You do that in, in where I grew up in rural PA, which I said yeah, rural, but a lot of right. these urban type places you're talking about, it is in serious decline in a decade yeah. if it's not heavily maintained. So I think you might see the same thing everywhere, but in different pockets of time. But you look at stresses that places have, and they all have different stresses. Like there's, a, there's a great book called The Original Green. It's by a guy named Steve Mozan, and it's it been very influential with me because he's very critical of what he calls the gadget green or the gizmo green. The, the people who, you know, let's put solar panels here and yeah. let's have a wind farm here and let's, um, and he's very interested in what people did before, uh, in a sense, before mechanization. And if we look at your part of the world where you live today, the big issue there has always been water, right? H- how do we degree, have enough water? To a degree. I mean, yeah, there's way more. I, I think that if you move west of here, that's a much mm-hmm. bigger issue. If you get out toward Phoenix and all, there's a lot of water. However, we do have a climate shift right now, and we just went through 20 months of the worst drought I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. So that can, that can, and when you look at these giant suburbs, I think about that all the time. Like, you know, y'all have, y'all are getting water from lakes 150 miles away. Right. And, and so I think you're right. That could be the stressor there. Um, but when I look at the towns like out in, in Arizona and all that are getting their water from Colorado, where they also don't have exactly a lot of water. Like I feel like, like that's really like that could go nuclear in a, in the next day, like gradually and suddenly style. Right. So you, you may not have, I guess what I'm saying is that we have this freeze thaw cycle up here that destroys roads quickly. I mean, if, if you just built a street and then no one drove on it ever, it would yeah. still fall apart in two decades, right? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and in Texas, that wouldn't happen. I mean, it, what happens is that when it gets really hot and people drive on it, you get ruts, right? Yeah. You get that kind of thing, but you don't get the pothole kind of failure that we get here because of the freeze thaw. Um, but we got plenty of water, right? Like we got yeah. lots of water. So water is not like our thing. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people in Texas and, and areas, you know, especially Western Texas, but yeah. I think you're right. Arizona, um, you Nevada, know, jeez, I, I mean, yeah. Well, I even think in them, you know, to some degree, uh, in in Colorado, you know, oh, definitely. Um, you're just gonna wake up and there's gonna be no water, and like I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do about that. I don't either. Well, I, I know don't. what to do. I know things that can be done, <laughs> but I don't know how to get them done. There's there's a ton of water for California is sucking that thing dry and there's a ton of water that they just take every year and send out to the ocean. There's ways to change that. Right. We have answers, but yeah. If you've ever heard of the scale of permanence, where you look at something like a mountain is the the most permanent thing, you're not going to change. And then, but right under it are laws and codes and regulations, right? And there are so many things that could be done that are actually not. Compared to putting in a, a skyscraper and a bridge are not that expensive. And it's, so it's not a monetary issue. It is a, a feasibility issue. We have a massive problem with the entire Mississippi River killing an area the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico every year. We could probably fix that for about $80 billion permanently. 
And $80 billion is a lot of money, but when you look at the national budget and you say this is the trade-off we would get for it, yeah, it's, 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 it's a freaking rounding error, but we won't do it. And even though I say there's ways to do it, I'm not going to pretend that we're going to, if that makes sense. Right. No, I, I, I know what you mean. I, I, a lot of the things that I hear, though, and this gets back to the complex, complicated thing, a, a lot of the things that are put forward as solutions are things along the lines of how do we keep this thing going? Right. Yeah. Agreed. So this is the, this is the extending the closing the gold window thing. How do we keep yeah. this going? Well, this is a constraint. We got to get rid of this constraint. Um, you know, the, the water thing right now is let's go to the Great Lakes and pump the Great Lakes down to the desert. Like that's a way to keep this going. And I think Steve Mozan and original green would say, you guys need to figure out how to use cisterns and yeah. you need to figure out how to, you know, have very low water usage because that's what people who live in desert climates do. Right. Yeah. There's desert cisterns that support entire cities that are 5,000 years old. Right. Right. But you, but when you, right. But when you look at those homes, yeah. yeah. So when you, when you look at those homes, what you realize is that they're also not building sheetrock palaces that need to be, you know, have air conditioning running for eight months out of the year at full speed. Right. So I've, I've always said, if you go to Western Europe and you spend any time there, you realize that they live a different lifestyle than us, but it is a really nice lifestyle in a lot of ways. If you go to Asia, parts of Asia, uh, not the major cities, but, but, mm-hmm. but other places, you realize that people live a very nice lifestyle. But in both of these places, they're doing it with far less resource consumption than we have. Um, if we were, in a sense, like forced because of circumstance to reduce our uh, overall energy consumption or our overall water waste or what have you by 20%, I actually think we would end up in, um, you know, in a, in a place where we actually had a higher standard of living. I think the problem is that the mechanisms we're going about doing that are all top down. And I think there we're going to end up with a worse standard of living. I think if we actually had to deal with this locally, you know, at the, at the block level, we could figure out how to do with less water. We could figure out how to do with less electricity. We could figure out how to have a really nice life with less resource consumption. But um, that's that option's not on the table right now. You know, I think though part of the reason, like, there's there's always dichotomies that don't understand each other, and part of the reason a lot of us move out into rural communities is not to get away from everybody. And mm-hmm. it's not to try to be completely independent. There's a lot of community being built in, in I guess we'd call the country, right? And yeah. it's more because we do know what the solutions are, and mm-hmm. we'd like to be able to do them without being arrested, shut down, prevented from doing them, interfered with. You know, when I mentioned my whole life would change if I moved two miles, I'm not talking about the people that live there. I'm talking about the fact that two miles away from me is a line that becomes a city mm-hmm. and where I am in the County, even though I can be, a, I can be a downtown uh, Fort Worth in 20 minutes. I mean, sure. that's how close, if my house was four stories tall, I could stand on the roof and look at Fort Worth. That's how close sure. I am. But the second I go over that line, my ability to implement the solutions that I've done here becomes contingent upon a bureaucrat going, well, you can do this. You can't do that. You can do this, but you have to pay a fee. 
Yeah. And I think so. I think a lot of people that are moving out, they're actually trying to do what you're talking about. There's right. an entire movement toward building essentially, I guess you'd call them like permaculture neighborhoods, permaculture cities. And it, it, it's, I think it's like, I think a lot of people would love to move into these zones that you're talking about and mm-hmm. do something, but they feel impeded from the ability to change that scale of permanence that somebody's going to come in and find them, arrest them, shut them down. And we've seen it happen. We've seen people shut down because they had a front yard garden. Yeah. Well, let me, let me give you in, in that sense, what I think are the two most exciting places in North America right now. Okay. Uh, Memphis and Detroit. Okay. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this and, and I don't think this is exactly the way you're thinking about this, but okay. I've spent a lot of time in Memphis and the amazing thing about Memphis is that the government is too incompetent to stop you from doing stuff. I like that. I like well, it, it, it has a lot of advantages. I mean, obviously, yeah. there's a point of decline where you're reliant on government to do things and then they, 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 they don't follow through on that. And so things start to go bad. Yes. But there, there reaches a point where that is, uh, obvious and evident to everybody. And you don't spend your time going to city hall saying, when are you mm. going to come out and do this? When are you going to come out and do that? You instead spend your time working with your neighbors saying, look, no one's ever going to come and do this. We got to figure out how to get it done. And in some places where that happens, there's just enough affluence where the, the government then will run out and say, stop doing that. Stop doing that. But in places like Memphis, um, they just have too much to do that, that is urgent. And so they tend to leave people alone. Um, I've actually experienced things like, you know, building, I, I'm going to say this. I don't want to get them in trouble. Okay. Things like um, being lax on the building code. Sure. You know, you, you can look at the building code and recognize that when you stack up all the codes that go into building a house, if you stack them up, it's like a three feet tall of regulations, yeah. right? Yeah. That you're supposed to enforce. Um, what that means is two things. One, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that is being regulated that doesn't really affect the health, safety and welfare of people. It's, it's not like it, your house is going to fall down or your foundation is going to go bad or like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that is frivolous. Yes. Number two, if you have that much regulation, you basically got room to do anything you want, right? I mean, it, it, you can find a way to do almost anything. And so by being a little bit lax on the code, what you do is you focus on the things that really matter. Are we building a, a, a building that's going to catch fire and burn down and kill people? Uh, are we building something where the roof is going to collapse and kill people? Once you get past a certain threshold, though, a lot of the rest of it is the, the outlets have to be 18 inches off center instead of 20. It's like, well, yeah. th- that's annoying if you don't, but no one's going to die and it's not worth ripping out a wall and you know yeah. doing this. So, what happens is that Memphis tends to be a little more laissez-faire, even though it's a major urban city with a lot of, ur- you know, urban bureaucracy and infrastructure, because they're kind of forced to focus on the big things. And I, I find them to be brilliant. I actually like Memphis. It is a, it is, I'm going to say it this way. It is a layer of really comp, like some of the most competent people I've ever run into. With this big layer of like incompetence allowing this bottom up energy to happen. 
And I, I, I feel like that mix is actually working in Memphis right now. And there's parts of it, because I was just there a few months ago, there's parts that haven't declined enough yet to where people can't basically be their own enforcement of, like, we don't allow theft here, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. what we have in some other cities is if people try to do that, the police come arrest them. Right. Right. You're a shop owner in San Francisco. You push a guy off your stoop for taking a deuce on it, and they come arrest you. Yeah. Right. So Memphis has declined, but not that way. And I think yeah. that people in general, if allowed to self-organize, will self-police a neighborhood and not, oh, Bill has the wrong color mailbox. That's HOA crap. It's yeah. we're not going to allow this dude to sit on our street corner here and deal, deal drugs. And maybe it's not five dudes are going to go out and beat him up. But you're just going to make it where, like, this really isn't a place. Like, this is not going to be profitable for you because drug dealers want to make money. Right. So or, you know, you're going to go somewhere else. And but. There are places where that's so – I, I love hearing that about Memphis because there are parts of Memphis I would not walk around in. But there's a lot – I totally agree. Right. In, like I said, I was just there in June. And there, it's it's an interesting place. It, it really is. What about well, Detroit? Because I've kind of always really yeah. looked at that and said I see a lot of really cool things happening. But I think it's more than just building codes, right? Like you're talking about this whole kind of – neighborhood aspect. One of the best things you can do for an area is have a place people can walk to and have a beer and talk to each other. That's exactly right. Or take their kids out to play baseball or whatever and not sign up on a sheet and wait three weeks to get access to the field. Like just impromptu pick up, play stickball. That's how I grew up. I grew up with block parties. You know what I mean? There were block parties and everybody was there. We had a parent internet. Remember the parent internet? That's when you did some shit two miles on your bike. And when you got home, they already knew you did it. Because somebody yeah. made a call to somebody. Who is that boy? Well, I think he's the Spirico boy. Oh, I know. I'll talk to his granddad. Like that is what we. But that's because there was a VFW. Right. There was there was a church picnic twice a year. There like stuff mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. how do we get to be able to? Because when I look at a place like some of the stuff going on in Detroit, I'm like, there's nothing there. So if you build a thing, even if you're not supposed to, you know, maybe it just becomes. It's not a cafe we just all come here and bring our own stuff like that kind of anarchism like the most positive anarchy possible there that stuff is going on in detroit and where it's happening it is beautiful it really is um i think we need more of it Uh, you know when you asked me what's the solution and i said you got to go meet your neighbors yeah uh ideally like what you're doing is working up to that right right um because there is a physical part of this that we describe in strong towns. And there's also this cultural part that you've been talking to about. Um, let me give two sides to the, 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 the issue because I, I, I want, I want to acknowledge both sides of this. So there's, there's a, there's someone hanging out on the street corner who shouldn't be there. Yeah. I, I think some people will hear that and say, Oh, that's the small town mentality. Like, you know, you're a white community. There's a black guy there and you go chase him out of town. And I've seen that. Like that, that is yeah. an experience. And, and, no, and I grew an, up, it wasn't even he was a black guy. We, nobody, does anybody know him? Yeah. Like, no, nobody knows yeah. him? Uh, no. Yeah. You, you know, yeah. I, you don't even know him to see. That was the thing we used to say. Right. I know him to see. I don't know that guy. Oh, well, well he must be a problem. Right. right? But let, let me give that voice because I feel like that particular insight is the insight that is often used mm-hmm. to squash what you're talking about. Yes. Right. Cause we can't, Oh, we can't have that because that would be 
that would be racist. That would be wrong. So we can't yeah. allow those kind of things to coalesce. But the reality is you can go to the neighborhoods in Memphis that are working really well. And they're largely black neighborhoods hmm. uh, where people know each other, self-police. Uh, they've got front porches. They've got uh, houses that open up onto the street without a garage in front. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you have the, you know, the old ladies watching the street all day, you know, <laughs> they're, they're literally sitting in their house watching the street and they will call people and say, like, there's someone who's not, doesn't belong in this neighborhood out here. Um, and, and you, I, I think if we step back and we say, well, good policing has to do this. We need to get cops out there walking the beat and we need to get more police in the neighborhood. If you actually go to the neighborhoods and talk to people, they want the police to be more responsive. Yes. And they want law enforcement to be a a more positive part of their community. But the neighborhoods that are working really well are ones where they actually have uh, this kind of innate sense of this is our neighborhood. It's our place. It's our community. We own it. We're going to take care of it. We have to work together collectively to do this. And if you come into my neighborhood to create trouble, uh, I'm going to see you and I'm going to be leery about that. And I'm going to take steps to, uh, to, to deal with that. And, you know, I, I, obviously I'm not, I, I think you can go too far in that. Um, but the reality is, is that for thousands of years of human civilization, that's actually the base level of security in a place, mm-hmm. base level of working together. And, and I, I, I don't think you can make a place run without it. Agreed. I don't think you can either. I don't think any amount of people in patrol cars will ever do what you just said for an area. It might make it a little less crime-ridden, but it won't fix the core problem. No, The township I grew up in was thousands of people. We had one cop. One. Uh One police officer. And we knew him by his first name. His name was Jack Harley. And. It, 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 entire cast township was this one police officer. And the whole thing was he only bothered Jack. If you really like, it was something you couldn't handle yourself. Like, you know, we're not going to go beat this guy up. So uh, authorities need to get involved or, you know, somebody broke into my house. I need somebody to fill out a form for the insurance company. It was, it was never a first response and it would have never worked because that one guy could not handle all that. If people behave that way, but there was definitely a, a, you know, I would have got smacked in the head if I didn't hold the door open for a lady by some random old guy, right? Like, yeah. like that was yeah. like, like, so like parenting was even a little bit of that. And, and so, yeah, I think in some ways we've talked a lot about the infrastructure, but the culture is as important or if not in some ways more important because culture will drive the, the, the changes in the infrastructure. Right. No, it, it is very true. And this gets back to that kind of parallel overlay. Um, a lot of this stuff has just evaporated with our, you know, with the way we build. I, I, there's, there's two psychological arguments that anthropologists and sociologists and psychologists make that I, I, that run in conflict to each other. The, the first one is that we're social species, right? We, we need mm-hmm. each other. And I, I do think that that's true, right? I think we are social species. We do need each other. We, we function, uh, better at working as groups and we are in a sense evolved to work as groups. But there's this corresponding, uh, insight where, um, we all in a sense, 
uh, default towards being alone. Um, it's easier when I'm having a difficult time with my wife who we've been married 27 years. So we, we have a very good marriage, but there are times when we just need to be apart, right? We need to be alone and I'll go sit on the porch and she'll go sit in the living room and we won't talk to each other for a little while. Um, I've got two kids. I said my 18 year old driving us nuts half the time. Sometimes we just need to be apart, right? Like we just need to spend time alone. Uh, I wrote this in my first book. You know, if my mother-in-law was going to come and live with us, my mother-in-law is like a beautiful person. She's a very nice woman. Do I want her to come and live in my house? Mm, not, not really, right? Well, here's, here's the reality about pre-Great Depression development patterns. This is how people lived, whether they wanted to or not. You lived in a family, and the family wasn't just a nuclear family or a disjointed family. Uh, the family was... You, your wife, your kids, uh, probably an in-law somewhere, a cousin who was between jobs and looking for a place to stay, uh, you know, the, the person who you, you, uh, were introduced to who, you know, stays in the bedroom up in the attic and, uh, you're helping out. It, it was this like wide variety of corporate stuff. family instead of a nuclear family, right? And in it, it, it in a sense forced us against our, personal nature to live out our human nature, which is more connected to people. And I think it's that tension between our own kind of personal desire and our collective desire where that, that tension works itself out. Um, in a sense, we close the, uh, the gold window on family cohesiveness mm. and we've not gone back. And I think, I, I think part of the disillusion that we're going through is in a sense going to, uh, favor and strengthen, um, uh, you know, family structures. Uh, and, 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 and we can define that very broadly, but structures where people are not isolated. I think over the next generation, people that find themselves more isolated are going to find themselves really falling behind. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's why community is important no matter where you are. If you're going to be rural, yeah. I, I would put myself urban rural fringe is what I call where I'm at. It's, it's actually a great place to make a living because if you want to do agriculture, because I got a whole market to sell to, right? We, you know? we knew all of our neighbors. Yeah. We lived on an 80 acre farm. When it was time to hay, the neighbors would come over and hay at our place. We would go over and hay for them. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll say this. This is, this is farm life. Uh, we always had beef cattle, um, amongst our herd and you raise them from when they were born. And mm-hmm. so by the time it was time to slaughter the, the, the cow, it had a name. It had a history. Yeah. You, you yeah. cared for it. And so the neighbor, uh, would come over and shoot the cow because you, because my dad couldn't do it. Yeah, I and got my you. dad would go. My dad would go over and shoot He's his cow because cow. he couldn't do it. Right. And so you both wound up shooting a cow in the head. Um, but it wasn't you, your cow. But it wasn't your cow. Yeah. And you carved it up and you put it in the freezer and that's what you ate all year. And you know that 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 neighbors we that's how we functioned, right? Like we work that way uh, with each other. So. I've, I lived in a, a suburban subdivision for 10, 15 years and, uh, didn't know any of my neighbors. I, I, I knew I, their yeah. names. I would wave to them sometimes, but I didn't know yeah. anything about them. 
Agreed. Let's see if we can hit a few things here from some audience members. I'm not really sure what this guy's asking. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to skip that one. Uh, Don Ricardo, if you want to make that more clear, we'll, we'll come back to you. Um, Tom is asking, K-Bonk had this question too, is Strongtown still rating towns? Do you have like a rating system? They said you guys used to have that. Um, I don't remember us ever doing a rating system. Um, what we would do every year is we have a, a strongest town contest. Okay. And um, we – so it, we do this at the final four time. It's 16 – we start with 16 places. They're nominated from our membership. Uh, we do evaluations of them. We have audience voting and we have member voting, and the member voting gets weighted a little bit more. So uh, we try to identify places that are doing good stuff and, and crown a new one every year. Jasper, Indiana was voted our strongest town this year. So I'm going to Jasper in um, October to have a little celebration with them. Cool. And I can yeah. see it doesn't surprise me to hear like a small city in Indiana doing well. Yeah. Because the culture I, we're talking about, that's the exactly messages right. are still there. I, I think the cultural thing and then the – it's less to me the home infrastructure, more the gathering infrastructure like places people could easily go to. We're starting like we're in a rural area and we're still, we're starting to see that coalesce here with, because there's no real restrictions, people could spin up a business if they have sure. a capital. It's not, so there's a winery that's three miles from our house. That's, that's close around here, you know, and they have outdoor concerts and all that. And if they tried to build on the other side of that line, it would cost them 10 times what it costs them to build there. And right. so, but it, it's that kind of environment. You go there and also you're meeting people and you're talking. And the one negative about where I live is everybody's, you know, three to 20 acres or more fenced. It's not that people don't want to talk to each other. It just doesn't encourage it. Sure. You know, it doesn't sure. encourage it. Like yeah. you, you, you don't just walk up to somebody's front door here. You're probably right. going to get bit. <laughs> you yeah. get bit by a dog. Um, yeah. Because everybody's perimeter fence. And, and there's some real advantages to that from a security standpoint because uh-huh. you have a couple of well-trained dogs and, you know, you, you have a lot of security. Uh, but it does make it harder because, you know, you happen to catch somebody and then we'll talk and then you form a relationship. And we have everybody that I can see from my house I know. Yeah. But I, that, I don't think that's typical for most people in most places. Yeah. So Ikamau says, Jack, our local city refuses to maintain our roads until they are brought to city standards. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, the city's supposed to do that? Not something to happen anytime soon with less than a thousand residents at 1.5 million a mile. I think that's kind of what you're talking about. That it's that's exactly what I'm talking about. Thin populated mm-hmm. areas. The tax base isn't there to maintain the infrastructure. Yeah, and and what you have is a situation where the city will say. Um, we, we, we don't maintain this road now. We won't unless you are willing to spend this exorbitant amount of money. Um, let's say that you do spend that. Um, now the city has to maintain it with the tax base that's there. And that means that, you know, you, that, that amount of money you just spend, plan on spending that amount of money every, you know, two to three decades. And that means your taxes need to go way, way up to make that happen. If you look at it and say, well, I recognize that this is not going to happen on my road because the economics don't make sense. Just recognize that this has already happened on every road that the city's taking care of. I mean, a, a lot of places like this, 
you'll say, well, I, I look and like it's really expensive to do this road, so we're not going to do it. We're not going to have the city maintain it. But then I go to a road that has the same number of homes that are in the same price range, but the city does maintain that one. That doesn't mean that, you know, the city made a good financial decision there. It just means that you're subsidizing them too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or somebody yeah. that's connected to somebody lives there. That's a lot of times well, that, what it is. It's crazy because that's like a stereotype, right? Yeah. Um, but it's a stereotype because it's actually true. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you know the mayor or if you uh, know how or to get mayor. in front of the city council or you are the mayor, right? Yeah. Uh, your road does magically tend to get priority over everybody else's. And Absolutely. I've seen that happen a lot. It's funny because you would think that it's just a stereotype. It's really not. You know, in this decay you were talking about, years ago my wife and I drove out to Florida and took kind of a different route back. And This is when we were living in rural Arkansas. And we came yeah. across this part of Arkansas I would have never even thought to visit. Uh, actually, it wasn't Arkansas. It was Louisiana. And there were several really nice lakes and there were a couple like kind of anchor towns and then some really nice houses built around the lakes. And a couple of the houses were still kind of nice and a lot of them weren't. And the towns themselves were gone. I mean, downtown areas and you could tell they used to be something with trees growing up through the roof in some of these, these, these towns. And I remember coming back from that trip and getting on the air and saying, coming to a town near you. Like this is like this is kind of like you you see these things happen and they happen over there. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a lot of support other than maybe tourist activity. And for some reason, that tourist activity shifted. So this thing died. So they think, well, it can't happen here. And there's, I don't remember who made the quote, but it was it was some entertainer said, when you hear that, it means it's about to happen. Right. right. When you hear it can't right. happen here. And it takes one small shift. And you could like I said, you could tell these places were. They really used to be something, and you could tell by looking at the buildings, the growth rate of, of where it wasn't being maintained, that this had happened in, like, the last 20 years. This wasn't mm -hmm. a town that was something before World War II and then fell apart. This was a town that fell apart somewhere in the, the late 80s, maybe early 90s that this place fell apart. I was looking up, because uh, there's a there's a place near you that you should go visit, Um there's a city called Carlton Landing okay. that is, uh, I, I, I guess, as you can get there in less than two hours from where you're okay. at in Oklahoma, um, in southern Oklahoma. And it's around a lake. And it's it's a very similar thing. It's a it's a poorer part of Oklahoma. The cities have kind of, you know, declined. Um, but there's this beautiful lake and this developer, Grant Humphreys, and I think it was a family property, but they've been developing it. Uh, they did this. First of all, it's it's great design. So you've actually built a neighborhood on this lake uh, with community in it. So okay. places to go out and eat, places to go get a drink, little local store, that kind of stuff. Um, and homes that are, are, you know, very beautiful, very nice. It's well designed place. Um, but unlike other developers, they actually incorporated as a city. Um, that gives you certain like weird tax advantages because mm -hmm. you can now bond and you can now do things that developers can't do, but cities can do, you know, cities can issue municipal bonds, which are tax-free bonds and they can assess things and they can do all kinds of stuff. Um, but it also, they lose a certain amount of control and it was an interesting kind of trust 
uh, reciprocation that they had to build within the community to be able to do this. Uh, but I think, you know, you would see if you headed up there, I mean, if you're ever up in that part of Oklahoma, take the extra time to go see it. Okay. Um, because it really does embody from a design standpoint, something that would be both new. So, you know, built, built in the last 20 years, new and, and in my opinion, viable over the long term. Okay. I'm definitely yeah. interested. It's about four hours, but that's something. Like oh, four hours. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Everything's two hours here. Okay. I feel like some of the stuff you're talking about, like I think regionally, there has to be this regional adaptation because what we think of as far versus what's, what I thought of as far when I lived in Minersville or it's yeah. totally different. Like t- the idea that you would have an hour and a half commute to work, where I grew up was insanity. Like yeah. no one would do that here. Everybody does that. Even if it's, it should be a 30 minute commute, but it's an hour and a half because of traffic, you know what I mean? Like, but yep. everything's spread out. It's a very different way of living and not all of it's better. Uh, K bonk says is strong towns consulting with any places right now. No, we don't no. do any consulting work. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I, I used, I mean, I did consulting for many years and just found that, um, when I started this nonprofit, uh, there was a lot of demand for it. And every time we did any consulting work, you wind up working in one place and our overall message stalls out. I mean, we're, we're building a movement of people around the country to do things differently. And gotcha. we, we've taken this approach where our role is to guide people down this path, help, raise awareness and help people kind of move down this path. Um, if we stop and, and put ourselves in a mindset where we're going to consult or we're going to actually like be there holding your hand, uh, our model doesn't work anymore. Um, what we do is we try to highlight, we, we call them heroes. There's a lot of people out there who are doing heroic work and we try to highlight them so they can be an inspiration to others. Because there's an endless number of people wanting to step up and do great things. We just got to give them that nudge. Very cool. Uh, let people know how they can learn more about you. I've got a, a slew of links that will be in the audio notes when this podcast goes Sweet. out on the audio side. But, I mean, they can go get over to strongtowns.org, right? And you have a podcast as well. Well, I do the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, right. We have a weekly weekly monologue or conversation uh, about strong towns. And then, yeah, we've, we've got two other podcasts, the Upzone podcast, which is like a, uh, kind of current events one. Uh, we do one called the bottom up revolution, which is interviews with people who are change makers in places. And then, yeah, we publish, you know, three times a day, every weekday on our site at strongtowns.org, new stuff. We're on all the social media platforms. Right. We've been doing a little bit more work on YouTube lately. So there's, uh, some stuff there people can see and, yeah, I, I spend most of my days traveling around the country doing talks, doing lectures, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, next week I'm going to be in, um, I was going to say I'm going to be in, in Oklahoma City or outside of Oklahoma City and then I'm going to be in Tulsa. So okay. I'll be near you, but not, uh, not too close. That's, <laughs> Tulsa's a bit of a haul. <laughs> I'll tell yeah. you that. Tulsa, Tulsa's a bit of a haul from, from Oak City, man. Um, yeah. One thing I do want to let you know, as a, as a podcaster, you, there, there's an app that a lot of my people are using that to listen to podcasts, and it's, it's called Fountain.fm. 
And okay. uh, you, you're, I don't know about the other two you just mentioned, but your Strong Towns podcast is on there. Almost all podcasts oh, are uh, iTunes are on there. But y'all need to get over there and claim your podcast. You need to install the app okay. and claim your podcast because it's part – it's an app that works with what's called the Value for Value Network that was uh, built b- built out by Adam Curry and some of his partners. And what it allows people to do is is tip content creators and, 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 and stream value to content creators using Bitcoin. And okay. I checked your podcast and I was going to boost you, but I can't because you didn't claim it yet. So I haven't claimed it. Real no. easy. It takes that takes two minutes to install the app, and then you go claim my podcast and you stick your whatever address is associated with your feed, and you click yeah. a link and it's done. And uh, so I, I would advise you to do that. We receive value every day from our audience in return for what we're putting out, and that's just one podcaster's tip to another. And if those other two, if you control those, I I would claim it because it's a couple minutes of work and it pays dividends for a long time. And that's, that's solid infrastructure. And the bigger thing is I can tell you're big on community. Uh, I got one of my expert council members, John Pugliano is an investment manager using it. He's like, my podcast isn't as big as yours and all. And so I asked him last week, how's it going? He said, well, yeah, I'm getting some value in, but he's like, the communication is, is, is a bigger deal because yeah. when people send you these boosts, they'll send text messages with them. And yeah. it's surprising how much shows impact people's lives because right. what we do is show people what's possible. So I would definitely get on that. Well, thank you. I will check it out. Absolutely. Cool. And again, it's called Fountain FM. You guys, uh, hope you enjoyed our show today. I'd really recommend that you get over to Chuck's uh, site, strongtowns.org, and check in what they're doing. It is some really cool stuff. And again, about one hour after this, the live version of this ends, the audio will go out. And I've got... Every single thing that y'all sent me, your Facebook, your Instagram, all of it, already in those notes. So you guys, whatever platforms you use, you can connect with them. Uh, Chuck, thank you for being with us today. Hey, thank you for the invitation. Really nice to chat. Let's do this again. Absolutely, man. Well, I hope you guys did enjoy that. It was a great discussion. It went rather long, so I want to wrap up quick. But like I've always said, I don't ever want to shut down when a discussion's going really well. Especially when there's some disagreement or misunderstanding, I really don't want to shut him out. It's when we learn the most. Uh, I will definitely have Chuck back on the show in the future. I guarantee you that, and I will be checking out his other work, and I think you should too. Uh, also remember, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. My item of the day for you today is the Outdoor Edge 3.5-inch Razor Light EDC knife. This knife made me do something that doesn't happen very often. It made me retire a recommendation on a prior product. I've recommended the Gerber EAB knives. They take a little standard razor blade into them. I've recommended them since almost since the show started in 2000. I think 2009 might have been the first time I recommended them. And a couple of years ago, I found this knife. And I found it because I found some other products Outdoor Edge made. And I I was like, I'll check that out someday. You don't need to just buy everything you see. And I had several members of this audience say, you need to get one of these. Because if you get it, you're going to carry it all the time. And they were right. Basically, it is a knife that you can buy replaceable blades for. They're surgical steel replaceable blades. You can change a blade out in a matter of seconds. So it's always razor sharp. I do sharpen these blades. You know, a few, several, like a dozen times. And I only do them with a sharpening steel. And it's not a super high-quality steel. This is a scalpel's steel. 
It's designed to be sharp and be inexpensive and be easy to replace, like a, like a surgeon's scalpel. If you give this knife a, tr a try, I think you'll end up carrying it every day. I carry a really great custom that Patrick Rorman made for me, and I carry this knife. And most of the time when I'm cutting stuff, I, you know, I don't really want to use Patrick's knife. This is what I'm using. Cutting up boxes. Dealing with, you know, and I love skinning with it, by the way. I love skinning with it. That's so originally when I found Outdoor Edge. That's what I was looking for. a knife. If I'm in the middle of skinning a deer, that knife starts to go dull on me. I don't want to mess around. I just swap the blade out. I can sharpen the blade later. You should check out my review on this one. It's rather lengthy. I have a, a video that explains everything in it. This is one of the best tools I've ever found. And again, it made me retire my recommendation on the EAB. Still a great tool. This is just a better one. And it's kind of a lifetime purchase. It's, it's really, it's lightweight as heck, but it's really, really well made. I think if you give it a chance, you'll like it. But remember, what, no matter what you buy, start your shopping at tspaz.com, and you'll help me out no matter what you choose to buy, even if it's not something that I've recommended. Also remember, you can join the MSB. That's the Member Support Brigade to help support the show. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. You'll see all the companies give you discounts. If you're an MSB member and you'll help support the show at about 18 cents an episode. And you can support us by listening to us, as I was informing Chuck about, on Fountain FM and sending us some boostagram love or streaming value to value for us. When you get on with the show, you think, yeah, what was it worth? What was the time that we dedicated to delivering it to you worth to you? It could be a penny, could be a dollar, could be five, whatever it is. You choose in that amount and send it to us in Satoshi's. And we thank you for it. And I do read all my boostergrams, even if I don't read them all on the air, because the whole share would be, show would be boostergrams. Anyway, with that, let me sign off. I'll be back tomorrow with the Just Jack show. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I did ask the community on MeWe what they wanted to hear. I haven't actually looked at what they've said yet, so I don't know if I'll pick one of those topics or combine a couple or what yet. But that's another reason to follow me on various social media platforms. You can find that at the survivalpodcast.com. Click on the Get Social tab. With that, you guys have a great day, and I will be back tomorrow. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.